The program will now begin. Welcome to this virtual event on recognizing talent and cultivating a pipeline. Strategies for ensuring an inclusive State Department. I'm Milan Verveer, the director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security. This is the first in a series of events we will be co-sponsoring uh, with the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. And you will shortly be hearing from their president, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. We are also happy to be joined by the Pickering and Wrangell Fellows Association for this broadcast. At a moment that has laid bare systemic racism and injustice, our conversation will highlight the need for a diverse diplomatic corps as essential for effective diplomacy and national security. We will also discuss the shortcomings of the State Department and its commitment to achieving these goals. Our discussants will share strategies for improving recruitment, retainment, and advancement of a diverse foreign service and civil service as well. Diversity is an advantage, yet as we will hear, we still have a long way to go in recognizing that and putting it into practice. We are also pleased to acknowledge Georgetown University's commitment to these issues. Our School of Foreign Service is proud to be a destination of choice for many Pickering and Wrangell Fellows, which as we will hear is the premier graduate fellowship program in international affairs and has been critical to building a foreign service that mirrors the diversity of our country. Georgetown's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy that is headed by Ambassador Bodine and on which Ambassador Pickering serves as chair uh, is also extremely active in this space. And I highly recommend to you their diverse diplomacy speaker series, which you can listen to at diversediplomacy.com. Career practitioners like Azra Zia, from whom you will hear later, are participating in this series and she and others share their insights on their careers and diversity and inclusion at the State Department. We have some 800 participants joining us today from over 60 countries. We welcome each and every one of you and about 40% are from the State Department, associated with the State Department in some way. We also welcome representatives of other embassies from other countries. Lastly, a very quick logistical item before we begin. We have already received many pre-submitted questions from our audience members. You will also have the opportunity to raise additional questions to the speakers throughout this event. If you'd like to submit a question, use the Q&A feature on your computer. Please give us your name and your organization and to whom you are directing your question. And now we will turn to Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. She is the founder and executive director of Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security and Conflict Transformation. She's a former US ambassador, special envoy and coordinator for threat reduction at the State Department in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. We welcome her. We're grateful for this partnership with WCAPS on this program and future programs. And she will speak to us both from her experience and her advocacy. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for uh, this uh, ability to do a joint program with you, uh, Ambassador Vivian. We appreciate doing this with the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security and the Wrangell and Pickering Fellows Association. And I also look forward to future uh, activities with you. Uh, this is an important discussion. Um, diversity in foreign policy and in our diplomatic corps is, uh, is fundamental. We are facing a lot of really important global threats and global issues in the future. And we really do need to have the best voices and all voices around the table to address these important threats. If we do not have the 
luxury of hearing from different perspectives and different ways of looking at issues, we will certainly not be prepared to address the threats that we have to face. Whether you're talking about infectious disease or climate change or all the way to weapons of mass destruction issues, we need the best and the brightest and we need everyone. And when we don't have everyone around the table, we are giving ourselves uh, a real problem in trying to really be the best of what we can to address these threats now and for the future. This has been an issue that's been on my mind for many years. It's one of the reasons why I established my organization, Women of Color Advance in Peace and Security, because we really need to have these voices. We really need to have diversity. We really need to figure out what's the best way that we're going to be addressing these issues. This is a problem that we have already said has been around for quite a while. Even before the GAO report, we knew that this was an issue. I remember joining State Department as a political appointee in 2009. And one of the things that I asked myself when I first joined is, where are all the people of color? Where are all the other ambassadors? There were quite a few uh, people who were political appointees like myself. And there were a few uh, people who I saw, but really the imbalance and ambassadors, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, uh, uh, deputy assistant secretaries, there was really a dearth and it was obvious at that time. And it's only gotten worse in the, in the last few years. So this important report is, is really good because it shines the light for others to also see. But most importantly, it gives us an opportunity to really look at the issue and try to address the issue and try to find solutions. But most importantly, it gives a platform for many people who've been working at State Department to give their own viewpoints and their own pointers and their own thoughts for a way to make things better for all of us, for all Americans. Um, one of the things that I'm also very proud of, and I would like to thank Ambassador Revere as well, is for signing a statement that WCAPS has released that has over 200, 200 signatures of organizations and individuals who are committing themselves to making change. And the important thing is that it's sustainable change. And that's what we're looking forward to in the future. So these opportunities to work with other organizations is really a way to also uh, ensure that we are continuing the effort and the focus on this issue. So with that, I look forward to comments from Ambassador Pickering, from Azra Zaya, from Naomi Green-Riley, and for all of you, I listened, I'm anxious to hear the questions that you're going to be asking us today. So with that, I want to turn it back over to you, Ambassador Revere. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador. Uh, and we will look forward to uh, having you back with us during the audience Q&A. And now we'll turn to Ambassador Thomas Pickering. He is a career ambassador. And for those of you who may not know what a career ambassador is, it is a special designation made by the President of the United States with the consent of the Senate on someone who has been a career member of the Senior Foreign Service in recognition of his distinguished service over a sustained period. And that Ambassador Pickering has done. He served as a diplomat for more than four decades, representing the United States as ambassador to Russia, India, the UN, Israel, El Salvador, Nigeria, and Jordan. He is also the namesake of the Pickering Foreign Affairs Fellows. So much more could be said of him, but we're grateful to have him with us today to give us his perspective on the importance of diversity and inclusion uh, in the State Department. And we're truly fortunate to have you with us, Ambassador Pickering. Thank you, Milan, very much. Appreciate your kind introduction. And thank you, Ambassador Jenkins, for your leadership and for your words of encouragement. And it's a pleasure to join Naima and Luzra uh, in this particularly important meeting. I begin with something that is central to the State Department, policy formulation and what it requires. Certainly the importance of diversity here cannot be underestimated. Understanding all points of view, the US and overseas is important to getting policy right. And diversity, women and minorities, brings a stronger possibility of achieving that particular task. Diverse groups bring language and cultural understanding and knowledge, both domestic and foreign, to the Foreign Service. And strong backgrounds in domestic and overseas views and policy issues is important for us to get things right. Uh, the fact is that not just in policy formulation, but in reporting and representation, and negotiation, 
as well as policy formulation. The diversity that we are trying to build in the State Department and the Foreign Service is an extremely important role. The second point will be what states done about uh, diversity. They've done something, but not nearly enough in my view. Diversity for years has been a subject for conversation. Some have tried to take the lead. Uh, you named a number of programs of recruitment that are important in bringing people into the Foreign Service. But there is a much greater need now, and we see it much more clearly, both in terms of the recognition in the United States that we have not done what we need to do with respect to dealing with women and minorities, and as well, the treatment of numbers of people in the Foreign Service that's come to light. And these particular issues need some further work. And the third thing I want to talk about it is what we might be doing about it. I think it has to begin with the Secretary of State making a statement to all of our employees, not only about the importance that he attaches uh, to <clears throat> diversity in the Foreign Service, but setting forth some guiding principles that will really indicate what an action program in the State Department can and should be doing about that. And I want to put some of the pieces of that program as I see it on the table here this afternoon. Uh, in recruiting, we need to increase the presence of diverse representatives of the State Department at schools and universities around the country, particularly those with diverse student backgrounds and diverse student bases. We need to use those representatives to actively talk about the Foreign Service and the State Department and make clear to candidates how important it is. They should be monitoring candidates and courses they give for spotting people who will clearly be of interest to the State Department. And we need to take these name programs that you have mentioned, certainly Wrangell and Payne and the one named for me, and we need to do something I've been struggling for for four years, double the intake. That would, instead of 60 candidates a year uh, representing diverse backgrounds, bring us 120. In the, in the department that takes three to 400 in a year, that will begin, but only begin to rebalance the representation that's necessary in the State Department to do that. But these are important. Second to intake is training. We need to include diversity as we have begun to do in the initial course for Foreign Service officers and in the opening course for all new employees. We need to talk about its importance, the treatment of individuals who are minorities, and the respect and indeed the dignity of those individuals that occupy a place in our workforce. Uh, the question needs to go beyond that. The opening course is just the beginning, but we should include diversity in leadership and management courses, uh, in the DCM course, in the ambassadors course, in all courses that involve supervisors and mentors. And I would take a jump and say in the uh, diplomatic security function courses, where in fact individuals come across each other in ways that could be antagonistic and where diversity needs to be respected. The next piece of course is what general things can we do to assure diversity is respected and honored both in promotion and assignments and in general work. We need to appoint a chief diversity officer of the State Department. This should be a diverse candidate. I would like to see that candidate come from within the State Department, but if we cannot find one, we should find the best person. This individual should be the chief representative diversity to the Secretary of State. Uh, he or she should be the counselor of people, whether diverse or non-diverse, who in one way or another need assistance and help in their dealing with diversity problems. And they should be above all the ombudsman in the State Department for people of diversity and others who have concerns or ideas that in one way or another need to be preserved. Secondly, each major bureau of the State Department should have a full-time representative of the chief diversity officer to follow on a daily basis how employees are being dealt with, how and in what way they are being treated, and so on. It is important that we look at the question of when issues come up, how can they be resolved? I would like to see the Deputy Secretary of State 
have a committee including the chief diversity officer, the director general of the foreign service and civil service, the chief human relations officer, perhaps uh, the head of FSI, uh, perhaps the representatives from the seventh floor, much as the committee chooses ambassadors to deal with the problems that come up brought to it by the chief diversity officer that need solutions from the top. On promotions, I would like to see each selection board for promotions include one woman at least and one diverse candidate, male or female. Uh, in, in addition to that, I would like to see those individuals at the end of each promotion cycle do a report for the chief diversity officer that talks about whether there is evenness in the quality of evaluations for diverse uh, candidates for promotion, whether there are considerations in the board that reflected in any way prejudice or were clear that they represented openness and honesty. I would like to see uh, the report uh, discuss the effectiveness uh, and, the, and what I would call the even-handedness of ranking of officers for promotion. And I would like to see it cover errors, omissions, and corrections that should be done in the promotion cycle. Ideally, Ambassador Revere, I would like to see individuals promoted on the basis of no identification of name, sex, or other characteristics, purely open, but purely uh, anonymous, so that each person got a fair shake on the basis of their report, not on the basis of some reputational, uh, 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 some reputational idea, either good or bad. On assignments, I would hope, in fact, that the Director General would open up the assignments process so that there would be an avenue, perhaps through the Chief Diversity Officer, for officers who felt discrimination on the basis of gender or, or minority status of any kind in their assignment process. And that that particular process, if it cannot be resolved in the personnel system immediately, should go to this committee led by the Deputy Secretary. The Deputy Secretary's committee ought to meet at least once a month to deal with it. I think that if there are problems uh, of mistreatment anywhere in the State Department, they perhaps should find their move uh, up the line to that committee for resolution. I think finally, debriefing of officers who decide to leave the service should be real, sensitive, respectful, and intense. We need to know why we are turning people off, or we need to know what is taking good people away from us. It is the public's money. It is our responsibility of people who honor diversity uh, to do that. It's an important question. And finally, we need, in effect, to have uh, a, a regular mentor-supervisor role, particularly with diverse officers that is, in many ways, clearly open on both sides, free and honest, and subject to, in fact, looking uh, very carefully at how things proceed in that regard. And final, final report, 360 degree uh, examinations of officers in terms of their promotable qualities uh, should include a very important section on diversity. That's a lot on. It may not be apt, it may not be quite on target, but it was the best that I felt I the department much closer to the need uh, to promote and to support diversity. And thank you if I've run a little over time. Well, thank you, Ambassador Pickering, and you have lived up to your reputation uh, for thoroughness and thoughtful. Um, reflection on some of the key issues of our times and certainly on this issue today. Uh, I think uh, your comments on recruitment and, and training and then the structural changes for accountability uh, in decision-making at the department would be truly transformational. I'm sure these are gonna come up um, in the Q&A and I'm delighted that you've agreed to stay so that we can um, hear back from you as well as um, Ambassador Jenkins and now moving to our panelists from them as well. 
So first we'll turn to um, Uzra Zia, who is currently the president and CEO of the Alliance for Peace Building. Until two years ago, when she reluctantly resigned from the State Department, uh, she had a very distinguished 25-year career of uh, deep service uh, as, a, as a career officer. Uh, it is, I'm sure, on everybody's mind hearing that she resigned. Why did she resign? Uh, and um, I know that um, Azra will probably tackle that for us. Uh, she served most recently as the Charge d'Affaires and the Deputy Chief of Mission uh, in France. And in that position, she led the U.S. response to three major terror attacks and forged unprecedented cooperation uh, with France in combating terrorism. She also helped to mobilize action against climate change, among many other uh, roles that she played in that position. Uh, and certainly in, in managing an enormous uh, mission at the time. Uh, before her service in France, she was acting, uh, acting assistant secretary and principal deputy uh, in the Bureau of Democracy, Labor and Human Rights. She's held many positions in the department over those 25 years, uh, but we want to uh, get to her uh, and hear what she has to say. She too has been uh, very thoughtful about uh, what needs to be done. So, Uzra, thank you for being with us. Why did you resign um, from a career that you absolutely loved and which you distinguished yourself um, very admirably? Um, and what is your assessment of the State Department in terms of its commitment to diversity and inclusion? I'm sure some of that is reflected uh, in your resignation. Uh, and, and maybe you could add to that what some of the key barriers uh, that you see that have to be overcome uh, going forward if, if the department is going to reflect uh, the diversity and inclusion and the importance uh, that it has in terms of our diplomatic missions. Well, thank you, Milan. Thank you for the opportunity today address a vitally important topic. And, and I would just say from the outset, I want to um, second uh, the comments that Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins made in terms of diversity um, really being a national security priority. You know, this is not a nice to do issue. This is, this is an, an issue, I think, which has been bipartisan. It has been one that uh, successive administrations have, have tried to do better, but as Ambassador Pickering said, the department has fallen short. And um, the situation <clears throat> that I faced in 2018 when I made a decision to leave the department and I retired uh, from the department after uh, 25 plus years of, of service, of which I'm tremendously proud, um, it was based on two uh, conclusions. I could no longer do good as I defined it in that role, but I also uh, felt on a personal level that I no longer looked the part uh, to represent um, an administration that as of now, um, we have a crisis uh, with respect to the representation and the composition of our most uh, senior diplomats. Um, I have the greatest respect for everyone who is on this call who is continuing to serve and, and do so under difficult conditions and um, with great distinction. But we have a department with uh, no African-Americans in assistant secretary level positions and above. Uh, we have a diplomatic corps with three African-American ambassadors, all male, no African-American women serving in this vitally important role, which is a complete uh, departure um, from the record of past administrations. And I think, again, the sum total of, of these trends is one which undermines our effectiveness undermines our leadership as Americans. Because I will tell you, in my own experience, uh, serving um, 19 of 27 years in the field, I found wherever I served, from Syria to Jamaica to India to France, that our diversity 
not our military superiority or the fact that we are the world's largest economy. Our diversity, to me, was continually cited as our country's greatest strength. And what I found is that um, in the countries where I served, I, I heard a familiar refrain. You know, the fact that you are an American diplomat is what I love about America. Even in countries like Egypt, where, for example, there was a great disagreement at the public level with American foreign policy, that recognition of American diversity as, as one of our greatest strengths, I felt, was, was universal. So I think it's really important that we have this conversation, but we also focus on the action steps uh, that Ambassador Pickering elaborated so well and, and really get beyond admiring the problem to redress it. And, and I'm happy to be a part of that. You know, I, I think it was very moving what you said, Ezra, about um, you yourself and your own representation of the country, of our country and its diversity and what that says to the world. Uh, and I think it's something we often forget uh, that we need to bear in mind because it's probably one of the biggest testaments to our values and to who we are. Uh, let's turn now to Naima Green-Riley. Uh, she is currently a PhD candidate in government at Harvard. She is a former Foreign Service officer and a former Pickering Fellow. At State, uh, she worked in public diplomacy and served as public affairs officer at the consulate in Alexandria, Egypt during the Arab Spring, not an easy time, uh, and earlier in Guangzhou, China. So two really uh, extraordinary assignments for a very young diplomat in many ways. But Naima, let's, let's hear from you about um, what it meant to you to be representing the United States uh, as a Pickering Fellow, the way we just heard uh, from Uzra's reflection. And, and how, how did you see yourself uh, representing this country? And was inclusion and diversity uh, an issue when you were at state? Was this something that uh, was part of your experience? Um, or is it something that you came to understand later from uh, many who are still at state whom you know well? Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Verveer, uh, for the introduction. And I'll just start by saying, uh, like, like I was so well introduced, I was a first a Pickering Fellow and then became a Foreign Service Officer at State. Um, I won the Pickering Fellowship in 2006 when I was 19 years old. Um, I was an undergraduate at Stanford. And then I ended up joining the Foreign Service in 2010 um, and leaving the Foreign Service in 2015. And I did not leave particularly because of my experience as an African-American or a woman at the State Department. I left because I wanted to get a PhD. Um, I asked my CDO if I, once I had gotten into this PhD program at Harvard, could take the time off to get the PhD. And there was a thought that it would take too long to get a PhD. And so I wouldn't be able to just take leave and come back. It would just be too much and I needed to resign if I wanted to do that. Um, but I have often told people that I experienced just as much racial bias um, at state as I have in other places, such as when I was, where I was studying or other places that I've worked. Um, and so it was definitely a part of my experience at the State Department, much like it has been a part of much of my lived experience so far. Um, and I'll talk a little bit just about what I think the value of diversity at state is. I do think that diversity is a national security issue, as has been articulated by so many people before me. Um, and you know, when, we, when many people talk about diplomacy, they think about words, so they think about speeches or private conversations, or written words and memos um, that we exchange with our, or words that we exchange with our counterparts abroad, but there's an element of representing America that is demonstrated. And that was very clear to me as a young black female diplomat serving overseas. Um, when I walked into the room to discuss a certain issue with one of my counterparts or when I gave a press interview in Egypt as a public affairs officer, it was an automatic demonstration of the values that the US has tried to promote for years abroad. 
And um, I should say that it wasn't always taken positively by my counterparts. There were times when it was very clear that the person that I was in the room with or the person that I was speaking to thought that they should be speaking to someone else. Um, but it was the appropriate protocol for them to deal with me. And so that's what happened. And I think that because that was the process, automatically saw America starting to walk the walk of embodying the diverse, diversity principles that we speak about. Um, but I also think that it was important for me to be there because I was able to extend some of the, the conception of what America is for people abroad. I was a public affairs officer in Egypt. That meant that one February for Black History Month, one of the groups of people that we interacted with got a soul food dinner and they got to learn what soul food was. And I remember having, very distinctly, I remember having a conversation about what soul food is and why the word soul is in that phrase. And it was difficult to source black eyed peas and collard greens and peach cobbler ingredients in Egypt, but we did it. Um, and I think that it was a way to sort of extend a conversation about what America is and what our culture is, because America's culture is clearly not a monolith. Um, it's also how, how we ended up running a soul train line in Guangzhou, China when I was there. Um, but beyond all those fun cultural things, um, I think there's also a deeper significance of having fuller representation in the diplomatic corps. Um, so when I was in Egypt, uh, it was during the Arab Spring, but for a long time, even before the Arab Spring, um, there's been uh, pretty, a, a pretty high prevalence of discrimination against darker skinned people in Egypt. Um, and you may or may not be familiar with Nubians, but there is a group of people, the Nubian people who are um, descended from both Egypt and Sudan. They're often about my skin color. Um, they were Afri of African descent, and uh, many other Egyptians are mixed with other things, Persian, Greek, Turk, Ottoman, North Africans, they have lighter hued skin. And Nubians often face discrimination in Egypt. There was a Washington Post article a couple years ago that talked about um, the state media campaign in Egypt in which uh, certain activists were being described as Nubian elements who were trying to internationalize the Nubian issue because apparently that was a, you know, concern for the Egyptian government. Um, and I remember being in Egypt and having people be very excited to see me, but particularly having Nubians be very excited to see me in that role. Uh, there was a Nubian elevator operator in my building in state, puts us in some fancy places. So it was nice to be living where I was. And I remember the elevator operator being very impressed by the fact that I was there and um, wanting to teach me Nubian and yet saying, we've got to be quiet about this because I'm not allowed to speak my language at work. If I speak it here, I could get fired. Um, I remember the Nubian club reaching out to me and a boss of mine who was also African-American and being very excited to see that America was represented by us because of what that meant for them. Um, and so I say that just as an example of the fact that I think that being a person who adds to the diversity of the State Department is useful not only to the, um, to the sort of like the, the way that people conceptualize our culture when we go out and do these fun events, but also to understanding that America is going to walk the walk of making sure that it is an inclusive place. And we expect that other countries will also do the same thing. Um, I'll stop there. I have other things to say, but I'll stop there with that story. Well, that's great. And it's particularly uh, interesting, I think, to hear both you and Uzra uh, talk about this, this personal experience and how uh, where you were posted, the kinds of reactions uh, that you got were very um, positive about the diversity that is the United States and, and uh, certainly needs to be reflected. Let's um, look at the way forward. Uh, we know that there are serious deficiencies, there are obstacles, barriers, problems. Um, you just heard Ambassador Pickering go through a slew of recommendations. 
uh, for both of you. What, what is working in the State Department in this area? Uh, what can be done to expand uh, whatever is working? And then some specifics from you and your experience uh, that have to go to the heart of recruiting, recruiting diverse uh, candidates uh, into the Foreign Service, retaining them, making sure that they can advance uh, and prosper uh, and be all that they can be. So Israel, let's start with you because I know you have personally spent uh, a lot of time reflecting on what can be done. Uh, I'm sure some of that overlaps with Ambassador Pickering and perhaps in those instances you can um, expand uh, or tell us what else you think would be useful to do. Well, I would say um, I would put my recommendations in, in three categories. And, you know, it's, it's a variation and reinforcement on some of the points made by Ambassador Pickering, but um, going further on, on a few. And with respect to recruitment, uh, my counsel would be we need to open the pipeline at all levels. And the fact is the, the Foreign Service Act, as written and amended, um, allows for mid-level entry. Uh, I see on the Q&A a question from the uh, brilliant American diplomat Natalie Brown about this issue, and there's actually a new piece of legislation that was just introduced um, proposing um, a reactivation or revitalization of the mid-level entry program focused on diversity. I think this is an excellent idea, but I think you can also learn lessons from the past and the anecdotal information I've heard is that the program was uh, lacking support, it was lacking training and accompaniment, it was also limited to particular cones, the consular and the then administrative, the management cone. So there are lessons you can learn in the way things were done in the past and do them better in the future. Um, we already have a system that allows non-career appointment all the way to the senior level. Milan, um, great colleagues like you came into the department and, and made a tremendous impact during your tenure. We need to recognize, I think, that to get to a diplomatic service that looks like America at all levels, uh, relying on a purely entry-level funnel, waiting 25 to 30 years to see what happens is not going to work. That hasn't worked despite all the best intentions going back to the Foreign Service Act of 1980. Um, my second point would be to reinforce uh, Ambassador Pickering's point on accompaniment and his point on meaningful exit interviews is absolutely an urgent priority. Multiple organizations and institutions have, have made that point and that data needs to be collected, it needs to be shared, and it needs to be acted upon. I think there is um, some terrific work underway in the department in terms of looking at the issues um, that today's Foreign Service officers face with respect to unaccompanied assignments, with respect to the lack of employment opportunity for family members and spouses, with respect to visas for same-sex partners and spouses. All of that work needs to be augmented. But, you know, the final point I would make is on accountability. Um, we need to close data gaps. Uh, we need to do more homework, have more transparency, and um, really have a zero tolerance for bias and harassment, not only in word, but in action. And that means um, taking decisive action for people who violate those principles and showing that they are held to account. So those are just some quick thoughts on, on my part, but I think this is a vital conversation to, to have and, and really move forward. Well, Ezra, they may be quick points, but they're obviously uh, very important points. Uh, and thank you for all of them. And I really appreciate your mentioning um, the legislation that Congresswoman Karen Bass did introduce today. Uh, and its focus is to um, create efforts to better attract mid-level uh, career professionals, mid-career level professionals uh, into the Foreign Service. Uh, and you just expressed why that is important. Uh, and um, 
why we need to augment what is already going on in terms of um, those who come in uh, at a younger age uh, to begin their career uh, in the Foreign Service. So I think that's uh, another very important consideration. Uh, Naima, let's turn to you and, and how you see this from a, a, the perch that you had as a much younger officer. Sure. I actually might start just on the point that Ezra Makis made and that you just brought up, Ambassador Revere, on uh, lateral uh, recruitment into the State Department because it is a hot topic right now. And I thought a lot about this topic. Um, and I think that any proposal to bring in folks at sort of a higher level is going to meet with some resistance from current Foreign Service officers because there's already a pig in the Python problem at State which means that people are not necessarily being promoted just because there are so many people that they're sort of uh, at the same level and grade as. Um, and so while that type of a move would be well-intentioned, it could cause a lot of worries um, for current foreign service officers. That being said, I do think that we need to evaluate whether it's even possible to make the mid and especially upper mid or uh, senior levels of the foreign service more diverse with just the foreign service officers that are still currently serving. And so I do think that it's um, something that should be looked into more, but I would encourage anyone who's really considering this type of a move to make sure that something like that is only pursued with ample input from current foreign service officers so as to minimize those feelings of um, threat really from the current foreign service officers who are serving. Um, a few more things. So I as we have said before, came in as a Pickering Fellow to um, the State Department. I wanna say a little bit about what the Pickering Fellowship entails because a lot of people talk about it, but there actually is a lot of misunderstanding about what the Pickering Fellowship is within and without of the State Department. So um, I received the Pickering Fellowship as an undergraduate, that program no longer exists, but basically right now you can apply for either a Pickering or a Wrangell Fellowship when you're applying to grad school. And typically the fellowships will fund people who are interested in master's degrees um, in public policy or in international affairs. You would apply at the same time you're applying to those schools. And then if you were to get the fellowship, you would receive a stipend and some support for your education. Um, and then you do internships in the summers between your grad student years and before you join the foreign service. And so Pickerings do a fellowship at the State Department in Washington and then a fellowship overseas. Wrangles do a fellowship on Capitol Hill and then a fellowship at the State Department. Um, but you end up after that signing a contract that basically commits you to five years of service in, um, at the State Department. And what's interesting is right now the commitment is five years of service for people who are having basically two years of grad student grad studies paid for, and it's not really covering their entire set of expenses, but 40 to 50% of what they basically have to pay for grad school. Um, when I received the fellowship, my commitment was four and a half years of service for three years paid of my education, and I think we got more than that 50%. So <laughs> the fellowship has actually lost some of the support that it used to have um, in terms of its supportive fellows. Um, but in terms of the the fellowship program itself, it has been praised by many, has been protected by uh, uh, legislators who uh, had to sort of keep it afloat at the beginning of the Trump administration. I think that, that the Pickering and the Wrangell are both very valuable programs. Um, I think that, as I said before, that they are misunderstood. And part of the stigma that comes with being a person of color at the State Department is that when you walk in the door, people are gonna assume you're a fellow even if you're not because that's where most of the people of color in the State Department come from. And um, you hear a lot of inaccurate things that are said by colleagues. People say, oh, well, they didn't have to take the test that we had to take to come in. When actually, I, I took the written and the oral exam. I passed both on the first try. Um, people think that maybe that we aren't as qualified, but fellows actually have to go through the additional level of being selected for the fellowship, which is not an automatic in. It's basically another written and another oral on top of the test that we do have to, take, to come in. So I would say the first thing that I think is important is that with the existing programs that, that the State Department has, 
um, we try to build more understanding of what people are actually doing to get into those programs and maybe build up more of a culture of respect for them. Um, beyond that, I think that much of what state faces is a retention problem with um, ethnic minorities at state. And I think that there are a few things that contribute to that. I'll talk briefly right now about three, but I'm happy to go more into detail about solutions uh, later. So I think that one, uh, there is, there are documented um, disproportionate rates of promotion for people of color at the State Department. So the GAO report that came out recently talks about the fact that people of color stay in each class at each rank longer than um, their white colleagues at the State Department, both in the civil and the foreign service. Second, I do think that part of the problem is just the institutional culture of the State Department. And I'll say more what I mean about that in a second. And third, uh, we've heard the word accountability a few times. It is crucial, I think, to really making people feel uh, secure and safe and welcomed in their jobs at State. And so when I talk about promotion, I think that just looking at the numbers does enough of a, a job to sort of explain what that issue is. People need to be promoted more quickly when they're people of color. Um, and I think that part of the thing that leads to the lags in promotion goes into that second point of culture. Um, look, America has a problem with race. It's had a problem with race for a long time. What that means is that Many, in many, many different places, not just at the State Department, in offices, in classrooms, in everyday interactions, people hold biases about certain people that they interact with. And those biases dictate how they interact with their colleagues. Many people who are at the State Department who are people of color feel that they hold to a different and higher standard than their white colleagues. Many women, women of color, feel that they are criticized for being assertive or for speaking up. And all of those things are compounded by the fact that the department has a very top-down culture. And because it has a top-down culture, we're often expected to learn from the senior ranks rather than to correct or point out or speak out when we think that something's going wrong or when we personally feel like we have a problem. Um, and so I think that that culture does a little bit of damage to uh, how people, how comfortable people feel in their roles at the State Department. Um, it shouldn't be surprising that at an institution where until the 1970s, if women were married, they had to leave the Foreign Service, or until the, I mean, until after the 1970s, African-Americans were very, very, very poorly represented, that those types of problems still exist. And if we expect that the senior folks can always tell everyone at lower levels, sort of guide them forward, um, then progress will be limited. Um, I will not only speak about my own experiences, because I think that part of the climate issue also just has to do with day-to-day -day interactions. And sometimes the stories of other colleagues help me to make my point a little bit more strongly. Um, so, there have been situations that I've heard of, of bias sort of getting in the way of people feeling trusting or uh, at ease with their colleagues. One example that I can point to is a Latina colleague who uh, a couple of years ago was at post and talking to a set of colleagues. And one colleague, a white colleague, brought up the fact that they really supported uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, which is great. And they started to explain to the other colleague while this person, this Latina person was listening um, and said, you know, like this is a very important program because it allows for people who, you know, who maybe were brought into the country, you know, when they didn't have a choice, people like you uh, to come to the United States. And this Latina was not a DACA recipient. And so she felt obviously bewildered. What do I say in this experience? in this instance. And instead of being able to have a constructive conversation about the fact that this colleague was clearly misunderstanding how some immigrants get to the United States, misunderstanding her colleague's history, it was awkward. The third person in the conversation kind of just walked away. And um, this woman was left to sort of fend for herself and try to explain, 
that's not my history. I'm confused about why you think that about me. And also, it seems like maybe you're not understanding just the general landscape as well as you think you do. Um, I remember a situation when I was at Post, right after the Mike Brown shooting in Ferguson, when a senior officer um, was explaining to some of the fast officers, some of the entry-level officers, that other people were trying to make it out as if there was a situation in the United States where, you know, the, where race was just blown out of proportion and this whole racism thing was really being blown out of proportion um, at the moment. And my understanding of Ferguson certainly wasn't that race was being blown out of proportion, but that it was something that was important to discuss. Um, and so in neither case did the people who were interacting with us mean harm. In both cases, they were very well uh, distinguished, they were well educated, and yet speaking up for the younger officer in that instance was difficult because of the top-down culture. And it was harmful. I mean, the whole conversation, the whole experience was harmful. And so I think that there needs to be some sort of a way to think about ways that we can improve the climate. And lastly, I'll just say on the topic of, of accountability, this is something that I know that a lot of people at the State Department have been really trying to drill down on, um, particularly PERFA, the Pickering and Wrangles Fellow Association has done some great work on this. Um, and PERFA is led by some very assiduous individuals, so kudos to them. Um, many people have heard the story of Tiana Spears, who was a consular officer in Mexico and on her way between the United States and Mexico would be stopped multiple times by CBP and basically was assumed to be a drug dealer even after saying that she was a diplomat. Um, and experiences like that are difficult, but what many people feel, I think, many people of color in the department feel, is that the department doesn't necessarily hold others accountable for when there are wrongdoings from harmful assumptions made about people of color in the department. And so sometimes it seems as if it's not within non-minority colleagues' interest to upend a system that benefits them and therefore they stay quiet or they sort of ease themselves out of the situation instead of really confronting the issue and moving forward in a way that will be more beneficial to everyone involved. And so I think that part of moving forward at state will require blowing through this culture of sucking it up or being a team player and expecting that, you know, like if someone is curious or if someone thinks that their comments are innocuous, they automatically are. Uh, and rather getting to a point where we start to address when those types of biases are being held, because if we do not, they show up in evaluations. They start to, they start to show up in the ways that officers of color are spoken about in a written form when they're up for promotion because everyone thinks, oh, well, of course, you know, that person's different, or of, of course, you know, like, I'm just, I've noticed that it's not common that you would see a black woman saying such bold things because you're not used to it. Um, and so I think that it's important to address the culture to be able to address the more structural problems that the State Department has. Well, thank you for that. And, um, you know, it's clear that the biases we have in our society uh, accompany us wherever we we tend to work uh, and certainly some of the the stories you have shared with us are the fact that those biases exist uh, also in the State Department in ways that are truly problematic um, in in doing what needs to be done in terms of our of, of our mission of getting in the way and how difficult it is to change culture but that we indeed uh, do have to work at changing that culture uh, we're going to bring back Ambassador Pickering and Ambassador Jenkins and uh, go to our audience now for questions. Um, Allie? Yeah, happy to share. Um, I think I'll start with some of the questions that go to what you were talking about, Nima, about changing organizational culture and mindsets and tackling bias. We have one here from Catherine Halleck, a Foreign Service Officer. Um, there's been a number of good ideas for tangible changes in recruitment. Um, but I fear it's the State Department's culture that's been most concerning and hardest to change. What ideas do you have for changing organizational cultures to embrace inclusion? And the second here one uh, from Stephen Moles. 
what strategies would you suggest for moving from diversity to inclusion, AKA headcount to culture change? Two good questions. Who wants to go first? Okay. Mm -hmm. I, go. Ha I have some thoughts. Um, so I was looking through what types of uh, systems we have in place to actually evaluate people based on uh, their ability to promote diversity in the workplace. And the place that I went there, uh, the place that I went to find that information was uh, the 13 dimensions. So for those of you who maybe aren't in the foreign service, there are sort of 13 qualifications that all foreign service officers are supposed to have. And when they're evaluated through their yearly um, EERs or other mechanisms, we use those 13 qualifications. The one that comes closest, I think, to talking about diversity is the cultural adaptability tenet. Um, and quoting from the tenant, what it says is that offices are to work and communicate effectively and harmoniously with persons of other cultures, value systems, belief, political beliefs, and economic circumstances, and to recognize and respect differences in new and different cultural environments. And so most people who are in the Foreign Service are going to be somewhat adaptable to cultures generally because they're moving themselves to different places every two to three years. Um, but there's an emphasis here on harmony and respect that is nice, but also could lead people towards uh, sort of a rigid, don't rock the boat type of an interpretation of cultural adaptability. And what actually the department needs is very forward pushing um, diversity promoters, people who are champions of diversity in the workplace. And I don't think that necessarily there are career incentives to being that type of a person right now. Um, we also need to just be able to go deep with colleagues because we live and work with colleagues in the Foreign Service, meaning that after you leave the office, you go and you socialize with them, you send your kids to the same schools that their kids go to. And as all of those biases tend to seep into every part of your life, you, there needs to be an ability of officers to be able to really grapple with anti-racism literature, to be able to read, to be able to have some sort of a dialogue and to be able to sort of really deal with what all the stuff that is there in between people, because it's not gonna go away unless we deal with it. Like you can't just forget it. You can't just say, okay, we moved past that point of our history. Um, and so I don't know if the best way to do that is to implement a really rich multi-day uh, reading heavy course at FSI or to bring some of that, some of that type of programming to post. But I do think that we can't like move around it. We have to move through it by dealing with these issues. Osra, do you want to come in on that? And then we'll go to another uh, round of questions. Sure. Um, just one quick thought to add on to Naima's excellent points. I think there is an ingrained culture of risk aversion and also competition built in the, into the Foreign Service, particularly um, structures like the promotion system, the assignment system. And Ambassador Pickering, I think, alluded to all of those. And I think we, we need to look at systemic shifts to shift the culture in that direction. And, you know, I've taken part in some interesting discussions over the last few weeks. There was a great one that the George Mason Schar School put on a week ago with some former FSOs and one of whom, Ambassador Steve McCann, talked about self-perpetuating networks built into our promotion system, into our assignment system, even something like 360 reviews, which I think is a well-intentioned way to get input. Um, we've talked about unconscious and overt bias. You know, there are tendencies for people to want to reward, identify, uh, give that helping hand up to, to people who resemble them. And the fact is, you know, the numbers are critical here. You know, you have a senior foreign service that's 90% white and over two thirds male. And this is where all ambassadors and senior officials on the career side are drawn. So I think you have to look at some of those systems in place as well and incentivize culture shifts in another direction. We've got to get beyond kind of an empty affirmation of EEO principles that we've all seen anyone who's written a review in the Foreign Service, it's just a throwaway line. So and so respected EEO principles. No, we need to have a much higher aim and, an, and a commitment to actively promote diversity, and this is where the accountability piece, the numbers gap, all of that comes into play. And the importance of incentives. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what everyone is saying, and I also want to thank Ambassador Pickering for his point, is that this is something that really is, it's not like a one thing. You have to really deconstruct a lot of what, a lot of the ways that we've been doing things at State Department. You have to just start, I mean, you have to have a process and a plan for how you're going to look at all the different processes. And it really is going to take something like that to look at all the different processes and how do we deconstruct them to take into account things that State Department really never has. Um, and so it's not going to be an easy job, but it's an important job. And it really does include not just diversity, but for me, the most important thing is the inclusion, is that's the retention. And if you don't retain people, no matter how, how many times or how many ways you bring them in, you got to bring them in and you got to keep them and you got to make them want to stay. And that's then that means looking at the entire system and, and deconstructing it. Ambassador Pickering, did you want to add anything or should we go on? I think uh, all those ideas are great and make a lot of sense. I tried by putting into my suggestions much more transparency in the processes that are involved through having people whose real assignments are to be, in effect, uh, diversity leaders and to have them watch over the process that's going ahead. But I think the top-down culture is in itself, in many ways, the promoter of what are clearly not diversity ways to proceed. I also wonder whether more anonymity in some of the processes of selection, promotion, and so on would not be a better idea so that people are pretty much um, available to compete on what both they and their supervisor had to say about their merits rather than by their name and that immediate identification. Thank you. We're over, but let's go for one more round, Allie. Yeah, we'll do a final round on the topic of specifics around accountability. A couple here. How do you make the department truly accountable for making real changes? What are concrete actions that can be taken to ensure more long-term accountability beyond diversity chiefs and task forces? Who wants to take a... I, I, I'm happy to jump in quickly on that. And, and I would say, um, again, in terms of closing the data gap, there is a... Um, real dearth of good information in terms of department retention, uh, the numbers of Pickering and Wrangles and women and persons of color who have left over the last few years. This is information that's um, very difficult to discern. Um, the percentages are out there and the numbers tell a very concerning story. But I think um, the points that Naima made about the 13 qualities, um, things like promotion precepts, which are negotiated between the department and AFSA. We haven't mentioned the American Foreign Service Association. It's a great organization, but I think it's one that even in its own institutional culture, it needs to, um, it needs to move towards looking at the interests of the institution as a whole and not considering its primary role to protect FSO advancement. And I think AFSA is doing great work on diversity, but there are some tough decisions and some tough choices here. And inclusion ultimately means more people at the table. And it does mean some people stepping aside to make that room at the table. These are tough issues that I think ultimately come back to our national security. And I think the accountability piece is critical. Anyone wanna to add to that? Yeah, I'd love to jump in just to, so on Ambassador Pickering's point that we need to de-identify people when we're um, looking at their promotions and looking at their uh, evaluations, I do agree. I think that if we are going to do that, we also need to have someone just go through ERs and make sure there's no coded language because you can take all the he's, she's, and names out of, a <laughs> out of an evaluation and still know exactly what type of a person someone's writing about. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that I know that there have been ideas within the State Department, once again from some of the affinity groups, to um, set up an, an accountability and management office. And this could go very nicely with the idea of a chief diversity officer. Um, but when you're, especially when you're the only, when you're out at post or when you're even in DC and something happens and you don't know what to do, there is a sexual harassment 
mechanism or hotline can call an IG hotline for um, issues that might need to go to the IG. But what if there were an, a hotline that you could call or an office that you could consult that could really help you to work through a situation? So not, I'm not talking about talking to the EEO officer and then having this system of review happen, but something to help you in the moment. And then beyond that, what if that issue were then connected to other procedures it, at the State Department so that if there were some sort of a reprimand that needed to happen, um, if there were some sort of uh, additional measures that needed to be taken by the PDAS of the Bureau, it could all be related to this very simple step that you can take so that when you're feeling alienated, you have an accountability mechanism with teeth at your disposal. Um, I think it's a great idea. It's not mine, um, but I do hope that it gets pursued. Excellent idea. Who would like the last word here before we have to uh, shut down this uh, very thorough discussion, I think, of the issue? Ambassador Pickering, do you want to go for it? No, I'm the oldest and I should be the last person. <laughs> but let me just express my thanks. I thought there were a number of good ideas that came out uh, and I hope that somewhere Maybe there'll be a record of these and somewhere maybe there'll be an effort to push forward with some of them. Too many Zoom meetings take place in an atmosphere of um, tremendous focus for an hour, an hour and a half. And beyond that, they disappear from the bookshelf. So let's think about how and in what way. And Milan, you know how to do this as well as anybody I know. This can be the first. Well, thank you for that. And, and we did uh, have our youngest on this panel tremendously engaged in Naima. I know you have a lot to offer in the uh, months and years ahead. Uh, and to Ambassador Pickering's point, I, I wanna say that this conversation will live on on our website at uh, giwps.georgetown. Under events, we will go back, we will collect uh, a lot of the recommendation that were I thought excellent, extensive, specific recommendations, very concrete that were put forward, um, and that these will lead over time to something tangible. Uh, because so much is at stake, uh, as you well uh, articulated, um, and it is going to require not just tough decisions, it's going to require real leadership uh, to bring about the change that matters so much. Um, for our country and for a commitment to these issues everywhere. Uh, so thank you all. Thank you, Naima. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you, Ambassador Jenkins and, and Ambassador Pickering. Um, and to all of you who have been listening, um, I know that you will join this conversation in many myriad ways in the days ahead and hopefully couple those conversations uh, with action. So thanks to everybody. Stay well and goodbye.